joy has been described as champagne for the soul. There is a celebratory and even intoxicating nature to joy. It's with joy, Isaiah proclaims, that we can drink from the wells of salvation. But can a bulky word like salvation really be intoxicating? If it is, I want that sort of joy, don't you? An intoxicating joy? Eastertide, the season that we're in, is a season of joy. And so in this series, we're reflecting upon joy in the prophet Isaiah and how we too can become prophets of joy. And what I mean is just as a prophet receives a message from God for the people, we can receive joy from God for the sake of the world. Joy is best when it's shared. One week ago, we reflected on how a small taste of salvation releases in us an explosion of joy. It fires up the senses. It's this decisively good news that God sent Jesus Christ into the world to reconcile everything, everything, every piece of the universe to himself. And Isaiah tells us that people and cities and nations and animals and mountains and trees and all of creation celebrates and will rejoice over this good news that God sent his son into the world to reconcile all things. The problem that we have to address this morning is that joy is easily lost. In one of his parables, Jesus describes a person who initially receives this good news of salvation. They receive it with joy, but then, like a seed sown in rocky ground, eventually the joy is lost and they fall away. They become preoccupied with other matters, struggles or sufferings or just the mundane everyday realities of life. Alternatively, Many of us know the gospel. You can articulate the realities of salvation. Jesus died to forgive our sins. He was raised to give us new life. He ascended to send the Holy Spirit. You know these things, and yet they rarely express themselves in your life joyfully. The joy is dim at best. For others here who are exploring faith, you didn't even know joy was on the, on the table. When you think of the word Christian, the first thing you'd think of is not joy. I'm not going to say what you think of. You should keep that to yourself because it's bad. But it's not joy. For you, joy is yet to be found. And so in this series, we've been considering the two core disciplines of joy, repentance and belief, which are the two core disciplines that Jesus taught for entering into the kingdom of God, a kingdom of everlasting joy. And this ongoing practice of repenting, lamenting over the state of the world, lamenting over the state of our souls, and believing in the salvation that God has declared, this ongoing practice, repent and believe, it cultivates our hearts and it gives us a posture to receive joy. And that's going to be the focus of our morning this morning, the posture that opens us up to joy, the posture that opens us up to joy. So open up your Bible, if you have one, to Isaiah chapter 29. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, everything is on the screen. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, take one of our great Bibles home with you. It's yours. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. Isaiah prophesies. The Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, 
I'll do again wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder. And the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Let's remember that we are reading an ancient text from the 8th century BC. It's almost 3,000 years old, written by the prophet Isaiah to the people of God, the nation of Israel. But during this era, rather than living for God, the people of Israel had become estranged from God. And through his writings, the prophet Isaiah reflects upon this very issue from multiple different angles. Many in Israel outright abandoned God. They had no interest in Yahweh. For others, however, it was more subtle. Uh, there were they were the opposite of many of us West Coasters who are spiritual but not religious. They were religious but not spiritual. You know, they continued on with the religious festivals and gatherings. They showed up at the right time and right places. They used the right hashtags for the right moments. Uh, catch up with me. This is 3,000. They didn't have Twitter. Come on. Uh, <laughs> they wore the right clothes. They had the religious calendar and jargon down. But it was all empty ritual. It meant nothing. What we must immediately confront is that in this passage, God shows us he is not concerned with religious activity. He is concerned with our hearts. Look at verse 13. God says, their hearts are far from me. And then he adds, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. There's a brilliant philosopher and theologian named James K.A. Smith. And he reminds us that the heart in the Hebraic mindset is the very epicenter of the person. That's different than how we think of the heart. When we speak of the heart, we think emotions, the emotive center. But in scripture, when the heart is brought up, it does include the emotions, but also the place of affection and desire. It's the center of who we are, and our desires then shape what we do. You could call the heart the control center of the human then. So when God says, your hearts are far from me, he's saying, I am not your center. Your life does not revolve around me. I am not in that core decision-making center of your soul. You might be religious, but it is not the same as pursuing me. Then God says, the fear of me is a commandment taught by men. It's not a fear elicited from a true encounter and experience with God. It's just uh, intellectual, theoretical knowledge that's been imparted through teaching. They're faking it and not making it. Now, you might be wondering, this is supposed to be a series about joy, so why are we talking about fear? Because like joy, fear is a matter of a heart. A heart that has never feared God is also a heart that will struggle to receive the joy we're talking about. And let me be clear, there is appropriate fear and there's inappropriate fear. It's the difference between basic human defense mechanism and phobias. The other night, for example, I was brushing my teeth, which in case you're wondering, I do two to three times a day, depending how ambitious I am. And, uh, you know, I was calm, I was peaceful, I was in my pajamas, I was ready for bed, and I was walking from the bathroom towards our bed, and Julia just like jumped out from a black corner, like, huzzah, you know, and I streaked, I screamed, and I buckled before her. Appropriate response. Inappropriate action, <laughs> but appropriate response. And pray for the Stern household, because it is on now. Uh, <laughs> But in another circumstance, 
If I was at dinner and I became overwhelmed with fear, screaming, get those orange abominations of hell away from me because someone served me carrots with my steak, this would be inappropriate fear. It would be a phobia. When we speak of the fear of God, we're talking about appropriate fear, not a phobia. It would be inappropriate if you're always afraid of God. God doesn't want us to be constantly terrified of him. This isn't appropriate fear. To be clear, the fear of the Lord involves the feeling of fear. You know, when we look through scripture, when a divine encounter takes place, what happens? People respond with fear. They fall on their faces. There's countless examples of this, but there's only one pressing one that really matters to us, Isaiah himself. In chapter 6, Isaiah has a vivid encounter of God and angels through a vision. And what does he say? He doesn't bust out with Pharrell singing like, I'm happy. He cries, woe is me. I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah, he's afraid. And it's not just reverence, it's a terror. He pronounces a curse upon himself. Woe is me. His sin, he declares, makes him unfit to stand before a holy God. This is an appropriate fear of the Lord. It's when we recognize who we are before God. God is perfect. God is right. God is holy. We're imperfect. We can be wrong. We are unholy. We do not stand before God as equals. And the fear of the Lord is actually seeing who God is and who we are. And when we see that, it is appropriately terrifying. Here's what Isaiah is trying to tell us. Hearts that have not feared God are hearts that have not been near to God. He continues in verse 15 and 16. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed of him who formed it say, he has no understanding. If we don't fear the Lord in our hearts, Isaiah says, you turn things upside down. You turn things upside down. You're living backwards. The well-known atheist and biologist Richard Dawkins personifies what Isaiah says here. He was once asked in an interview, if you die and met God, what would you say? Dawkins said, if I met God in the unlikely event, the first thing I'd say is, which one are you? And why did you take such pains to conceal yourself and hide away from us? But this is an upside-down perspective. You see, he insinuates, God, you did it wrong. You don't have any understanding. We understand better than you. But we're living in an upside-down world if we think we can stand above God and that he has to answer to us and not the other way around. It's upside down for the creature to be supreme over the creator, the clay to be above the potter, the accused above the judge. So do you see, just as it's possible to have an inappropriate fear of the Lord, it's also possible to have an inappropriate fearlessness of the Lord. And if we listen to Isaiah, if we get tuned into what he's saying here, he's showing that from the most religious among us, to even the most atheistic among us. We can share the same problem. 
We do not desire God in our hearts. But I can hear some of you thinking, so what? You may not desire God at all or very strongly, but this hasn't stopped you from experiencing some form of contentment, some happiness, even moments of joy. So why worry about sin and fearing God and this seemingly negative view of the world? Artis Whitman uh, was a writer and lecturer. If you're looking for a baby name, Artis is the one that should make a comeback. Uh, she contributed to the Reader's Digest for 40 years. And she wrote hundreds of articles for them. And one is titled, The Secret to Finding True Joy is Simpler Than You Think. And she reflects upon the serendipitous nature of joy. It comes to us randomly and surprisingly and mostly beyond our control. And in this letter, an article, she describes a story of a young mother. She writes, getting breakfast for her family, she hurried about the kitchen, pouring orange juice and coffee, spreading jam on toast. The children were chattering. The sun streamed in on their faces. Her husband was playing with the littlest one. All was usual. But as she looked at them, she was suddenly so overcome by how much she loved them that she could scarcely speak for joy. Many of us have had moments like this where we get so in touch with what's going around us in the world, we become filled with joy. Whitman concludes with something truly beautiful. She writes, Joy is the feeling that we've touched the hem of something far beyond ourselves. But she also says, the sad thing is that it happens to most of us so rarely. The joy you'll experience without your heart desiring God is just touching the hems of joy that's available if you trust in the Lord. The joy you experience without him is at best a glimpse. And even when you do experience some of this joy without God, you have no control over its frequency. And at best, it comes rarely. So why would we settle for only the hem of joy when something so much bigger is available to us? Now understand, for the average person, when you're thinking about the character you want to become, the things you're putting on that list, fear is not on the top of the list. We don't want to be fearful people, always afraid of what may be around the bend or what's outside of our control. But that's not the fear Isaiah is speaking about. He's calling us to live right side up, which means acknowledging our place under God. God is the potter. We are the clay. He is the maker. We're the creation. And Isaiah also shows us that God is not judging us based off of what we do in this life, which is a common misunderstanding of God. God will weigh us by our desire for him. He will weigh us by our hearts. That's terrifying. The problem, as St. Augustine put it, is that we're curved in on ourselves. We're perpetually self-focused and self-absorbed. We're powerless in a way to muster up lasting interest in the one who made us and loves us. We, can get, we can't get our hearts to stay in the right posture. At best, we're like Adam depicted in Michelangelo's The Creation of Adam. Even if we can muster up some energy to reach out to God, it's at best limp disinterest. Does your heart long for me? Like a lover, that is God's fundamental question to us. Does your heart long for me? And this should cause us some fear. 
Have you ever had to tell an authority figure that you let them down? Your boss that you missed a deadline or lost a major client. Your investor that you've lost all the money. Your spouse that you cheated. Your child that you forgot them. A friend that you've been gossiping about them. If just imagining having to do any one of those things causes us fear, try and imagine telling the God of the universe, your maker, that you have not rightly desired him. You have not done the one central thing he looks for in a human. Instead, that you've been living upside down. And he'll judge you. He'll determine it. And he has the power to cast any one of us into utter darkness for eternity, separated from the source of life and love, which is a joyless existence. It's fearful because he can do it rightly and justly. Do not rush past the fear in this text. That's its caution. It's not enough for me to simply teach you about fear of the Lord. Isaiah says that's not enough. You must seek God, your maker, the lover of your souls and your judge, and you must fear him yourself. Have you ever feared the Lord in this way? A heart that does not engage with God is a heart that cannot receive lasting joy. The good news, according to Isaiah, which is why he's encouraging this fear, is that a heart that has feared the Lord will be a heart that softens and opens to the fullness of joy that's available to us. And all of this lead up now leads us to our main point. What is this posture of joy? Look at verses 17 through 21. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. When we don't fear the Lord, we're living upside down. We're living backwards. But when we fear the Lord, we have no choice but to submit to his power. And yes, this causes us to shake in our shoes to some extent, but then we also see that God uses his power in good and perfect and beautiful ways for all of the earth and all of humanity. We see that God is trustworthy. Consider the stunning images here in Isaiah. God promises to turn our upside-down world right side up. What's been desolated will start to flourish and blossom. Renewal will spread throughout all of the earth. Life is going to spring forth. What's broken is going to be restored. And people are going to be made well too. As Isaiah prophesies, the deaf, they're going to hear. The blind, they're going to see. Just a few verses earlier in this chapter, verses 9 through 12. God declared that a spirit of sleep was upon us. That we were blind and deaf to him. And so while what Isaiah is describing here is about the ultimate restoration of our bodies, that one day the blind will truly see and the deaf will truly hear, he's also talking about how God will open our eyes and ears to spiritual truths and realities that we were blind to. We did not know him rightly. We did not see him rightly. We did not hear him rightly. And yet, the blind will see and the deaf will hear. And yet, God uses his power 
to make us see him, to make us hear him, to move our hearts toward him, to take out the hearts of stone and give us hearts that feel love toward him to help us desire him even. In short, God saves us. Whereas the kids are saying, when we respond to this reality, we will be woke. Did I use that right? Probably not. Do you see, though, what Isaiah is emphasizing here? God makes things right, not us. It's God's ability and power, not our own. God saves. We can't save ourselves. We can't even muster up our hearts to love him continually. We can't do it. We just can't do it. Fearing God, telling him, woe is me, I am lost, I have unclean lips, is the first step out of living upside down. We come out of the gloom and darkness and we enter into these beautiful promises of God. And then we can see truly and we can hear these beautiful promises like verse 19. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. If you're going to remember one thing this morning, let it be that. This is the posture to receive joy. Throughout scripture, the meek are those who actively trust in God's strength and not their own. The meek are those who wait upon the Lord to fulfill his promises. The meek, they're humble, which is why some other translations translate this verse as the humble shall obtain fresh joy. C.S. Lewis brilliantly stated, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. A simple Google search led me to an article called How Humility Will Make You the Greatest Person Ever. That's not humility. If you're trying to be humble so that you can be great, that's not humility. And I was sharing this with Roger, and he informed me that he actually wrote two books on humility. The first is titled Humility and How I Achieved It. Uh, but this was actually his second book. Uh, his first was called The World's Ten Most Humble People and How I Met the Other Nine. I thanked Roger for these illustrations, and I, I told him it's my gift to you. The moment we try to be meek, you notice one of the forwards is by Moses and the other is by Roger himself. The moment we try to be meek, we're navel-gazing. We can't become meek or humble by trying to become meek or humble. That's like trying to be selfless by taking a selfie. It just doesn't work. You can't add meekness to the list of things you want to grow. So what do we do? I say it's really clear. The blind, they can't force sight. The deaf, they can't force themselves to hear. The poor can't materialize riches. In the same way, the meek are in touch with the reality that they can't do it. They can say, I can't do it. I'm powerless. I'm needy. They accept this. I can't do it. The meek are those who know they have nothing to offer God. They fear who they are compared to God. And this leads them to lament over their condition. It leads them to repent. But what's remarkable is their trust. They fear who God is, but they also trust who God is. They trust and they believe that God has everything to offer them. And they trust and they wait upon God's power to save 
even when everything in the world shouts contrary. Do you see then, whether it's fear or trust, the meek, they're not focused on themselves, they're focused on God. If they have fear, it's fear of him. If they have trust, it's in him. And this ongoing discipline of repentance and belief, it makes us meek over time because the practice requires us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to fix them, as the author of Hebrews says, on Jesus. And this is the posture that opens us up to joy. Do you see, we can make no demands for joy, but we can trust that it's God's good pleasure to give it to us. After all, the promise here is what? The meek shall obtain fresh joy, which means God won't hold out on us. And our joy will flow as we trust in the Lord who does what he says. And it's not stagnant joy either. It's not the joy of yesterday or the past. It's not serendipitous or rare. It's a joy available each and every day. It's fresh joy in the Lord. Because God's promises do not change. He is not fickle. And the ongoing of practice of repenting and believing in what he says opens us up to obtaining this fresh joy again and again. The meek will obtain fresh joy and so much more. So much more. Recall the Sermon on the Mount. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We're not just going to inherit fresh joy. Even though we deserve nothing from God, we're going to inherit everything. We're going to inherit the earth. If we read all of Isaiah, we're not just going to inherit the earth, but a new heavens and a new earth, which is the trajectory of Scripture. We're going to inherit a world where every tear is wiped away, where death is no more, where suffering is eradicated, where we are enthroned, so to speak, with joy. Everlasting joy, we're told, will be our crowns. This is what we will inherit, even though we don't deserve it. This is the fresh joy that can refresh our souls again and again, day after day. It's the joy of knowing that the God who we rightly fear is the same God who is quick to say many times, countless times in Scripture, fear not. Fear not. It's the joy of knowing that although he could rightly judge our fickle hearts, he chooses to save us because he loves us before we loved him. It's the joy of trusting that no matter how glim or dark things may appear, Jesus will return and everlasting joy will be our crown. Simply put, it's the joy of living right side up. When you're living right side up, you let God be God. And if you've never known this joy, it can be yours. Jesus has done for you what you could never do for yourself. The first step to receiving this joy is saying, I can't muster it up. I can't take it for myself. But as Paul writes to the Philippians, Jesus humbled himself. He was meek. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he did this not because he was focused on himself, but because he saw the joy set before him. Because he wanted to find a place in the kingdom of God for you to experience everlasting joy. There's nothing you can do but accept what has already been done. If you've had this joy, but it's grown 
faint or lost altogether. There, there's many culprits that can happen that, that cause joy to dissipate in our lives. But the one that Isaiah wants us to consider this morning is that we can be going through the motions but with no heart. And if this is the case, it's because in some capacity, we're navel-gazing again. We're caught up in ourselves. The joy of the Lord, you see, it's not natural. It's a gift. It's in the Lord. It's not in ourselves. And we can only receive it as we recognize how prone our hearts are to go astray, how prone we are to drink from other wells rather than the well of salvation. And there's no magic formula to obtaining joy. There's just a promise. The meek shall inherit Fresh joy. And so we come to him again and again with repentance and belief. And we ask, we put ourselves in that almost humiliating position of saying, I can't do it. I'm not joyful. I don't even know how to be. I trust your promise. And the promise is that fresh joy will come. Even if it feels like it's a million miles away. Even if it's not immediate, even if it's not before our last breath, fresh joy will come because God has promised those who believe in him an everlasting crown of joy. And this reason alone is cause for rejoicing. This joy, it can be yours. God doesn't hold it out from us. We can touch the hems of joy. We can get glimpses of joy. But God promises that we can have this joy of salvation and it will get better and better and every piece of joy that we experience on this side of eternity is just a glimpse of the joy that is to come. And so may we become prophets of joy. May we receive this joy from the Lord, but not keep it to ourselves, but share it to a joyless city that's happy and content with happiness, but does not know joy. May we know that joy, not just for our own sake, but for our neighbor's sake.